Trauma occurs when a child is forced to adapt to the needs of their caregiver. My name is Andrea, and this is Adult Child. Welcome back to Adult Child, where we take a deep dive into the impact of growing up in a dysfunctional family. Hello, my dear shit shows. How is it going today? I meant to tell you guys this a couple weeks ago and I forgot. So I had somebody reach out to me on Instagram and say, <laughs> they said that they thought it was just so disrespectful that I, that I call my listeners shit shows. Shit show is a term of endearment here, guys. Um, I will call myself the, the biggest shit show of them all, the queen of the shit shows. So if you're not okay with being called a shit show, I promise you that this is not, <laughs> this is not the podcast for you. But guess what? There are so many damn podcasts out there that won't call you a shit show. Actually, probably all the other, probably all the other podcasts out there won't call you a shit show. Um, but that's my, that's my niche here. Okay. That's, you know, I had to figure out a way to, to break into the podcast space to figure out to do something that, that other people weren't doing. And I, I realized that there's not a lot of other podcasters out there that are calling, calling their, their listeners shit shows. So that's what I'd be doing here. Yes, I am quite the shit show. And today we are diving deep with Carmen Dominguez. So she is the executive clinical director at Integrative Life Center, and she has over 30 years of experience as a psychotherapist working in the addiction and trauma field. And actually, Integrative Life Center, you guys, is our is our first sponsor of the podcast. Um, so I w- want to be very selective about who... Who sponsors the show? Because you guys are special to me. If you didn't know that, you shit shows are very special to me. And so I want to be, you know, mindful of, of that. And let's be honest, there are a lot of shitty, well, let's not say shitty. There's a lot of not so great treatment centers out there. And so integrative life center. So they treat addiction, trauma, various mental health disorders, as well as sex addiction and intimacy disorders. And what I think is so great about it is that they're really trauma focused. I have been to three inpatients and three inpatient rehabs and about, I don't know, I probably went to like six or seven outpatients. Not one of them do I remember trauma ever coming up in the discussion, like ever. And granted, we know a lot more about the role that trauma plays in all that. I mean, it's really become more of a a topic of conversation in the past, I don't know, 10 or so years. And I'm coming up on 14 years sober. So I understand that it wasn't like as much as part of the recovery model back then, but it never came up. And it is, it's such an important aspect of addressing all addictions, all mental health disorders, in my opinion. I think that most of this has, has a root in trauma. That's why I think integrative is, is really awesome. So I'll, I'll be sharing more about them over the next few weeks. Um, but they have locations in Tennessee, 
Mississippi and Colorado and check out the show notes for website, email, phone number, all that fun stuff. And so I'm going to be talking to, I'm going to be, I, I already did talk to her. <laughs> I'm playing it for you now. I talked to Carmen about a variety of things. Uh, one thing we talk about is the, the polyvagal theory. So, hey, Claire, we're talking about this. One of my shitties, my shit shows, Patreon members, Claire had asked if I could talk about this. It's honestly something that I don't know a ton about. So I spoke with Carmen about that. And we just talk about a whole bunch of different trauma-related things. So one thing that she brings up, one thing that Carmen mentions is the book, The The Four Agreements. I had read this book a while ago. I went back through it after having my conversation with her. And so highly recommend that you read this book if you have not. I'll also include that in the show notes. But it's essentially about the the adult child condition. You know, I talk a lot about faulty programming being the result of her childhood. So basically you could replace programming uh, for agreements, these faulty agreements in childhood, not really by choice, that dictate our life going forward. And talking about the process of basically breaking these faulty agreements and replacing them with with healthy agreements. And so I was looking to see what I had highlighted uh, in the book. And I came across this and buckle up, let this sink in. Okay. It says in your whole life, nobody has ever abused you more than you have abused yourself. And the limit of your self abuse is exactly the limit that you will tolerate from someone else. If someone abuses you a little more than you abuse yourself, you will probably walk away from that person. But if someone abuses you a little less than you abuse yourself, you will probably stay in the relationship and tolerate it endlessly. If you abuse yourself very badly, you can tolerate someone who beats you up, humiliates you, and treats you like dirt. Why? Because in your belief system, you say, I deserve it. This person is doing me a favor for being with me. I'm not worthy of love and respect. I'm not good enough. <clears throat> you know, the thing for me is that, and I've shared this before, and how many times have I said, and I've shared this before, I was not aware of of how I abused myself or how little I thought of myself. You know, on a conscious level, I, I didn't I didn't see that or I didn't feel that. It was shown in the way that I allowed myself to be treated from others. So I think that that is a really good indicator of our of our self-worth, of how we view ourselves, taking a look at what we tolerate from other people. If you have a bunch of relationships where people treat you like shit or you accept mere crumbs deep down inside, you don't think so highly of yourself. That was once me. The work is still not done, but I, I have changed a whole hell of a lot. There's no way that I would tolerate mere crumbs. I'm looking for the whole damn loaf, okay? Um, well, that is enough out of me. Let's get on with the damn interview. But first, how about you damn the join Patreon or join the damn Patreon 
This is where I host three weekly Zoom support groups. There's a meditation group on Monday. We have a uh, WhatsApp chat group that is literally a support group of shit shows that is in your back pocket, okay? If you're having a tough day, if you have a victory, if you have a funny meme, anything, you have a group of people that are there to respond to you. A bunch of shit shows, a bunch of people who are okay with being called shit shows. So that means they're pretty damn cool, okay? So go to patreon.com slash adult child. Please give me a little follow on the Instagram, on the TikTok. I just had a very creative post yesterday, my fake dating profile. Go check it out. Pretty damn funny at adult child pod, Instagram and TikTok and go give me a damn five star rating on Apple and Spotify. If you're new here, that's what we do here. Thank you. Love you all. Well, guys, it is my pleasure to introduce Carmen Dominguez. She is the executive clinical director of Integrative Life Center. Howdy ho. Hello. Nice to be here. Of course. So I've just done some mild stalking on you. Later on, I want to get into your personal story, but a few questions I was thinking about. So I... I was inpatient, I guess, three different times. The last time I was inpatient was in 2008. I do not remember, and I went to good places. I don't remember trauma ever coming up. What are your thoughts? I have mixed feelings about this. So there's a part of me that thinks that somebody needs to kind of get control of of the substance abuse issues and, and kind of get some solid sobriety there before they're really in a place where they can start confronting those deeper issues and the deeper trauma. But then there's another part of me that feels like part of the reason that a lot of people can't stay sober is because they're not addressing the trauma. So if someone's coming in, into, you know, residential treatment and they're, you know, an active addiction, they're getting sober what it, what is your thoughts as far as like how how deep does one go in such the the early stages of when you're trying to just get that physical sobriety yeah that's a really good question and i would say that w- we would want to be intentional about how to bring client in to the journey of healing and the first i would say phase of healing has to do with establishing a sense of safety within their own within their own being that's really important what you're talking about is to speaks to how challenging it is to really treat the trauma if you will the trauma wound it when you're in a state that is dysregulated so the first phase of treatment is really to orient clients who come to see us to the way that we understand the healing journey you know that there's many ways to um, heal tra- trauma, but if you consider that there's one destination, perhaps, and that one destination, mm-hmm. first and foremost, is to establish a sense of safety within themselves. And, you know, that starts with really orient them to the, our culture and the way we see it, the way we see healing. The healing journey really starts with 
recovering your sense of inherent worth that has been lost in your attempt to survive because we're wired for safety and connection. So right from the get-go, humans get busy scanning the environment to establish a sense of safety first. You know, we need safety and connection, but safety usually overrides the connection. And we develop patterns to keep us safe. And so when a client first comes into ILC, we really want to, you know, shed light on that process that the first step really is to uh, recover their inherent worth and their sense of safety. But isn't that like a lifelong journey? (laughs) It is certainly a lifetime journey. It is. It is. It's ongoing because, you know, we can find our sense of inherent worth. We can find our sense of safety. And then we can lose it in a nanosecond when something happens in the environment that triggers us in Mm -hmm. some way. The difference is, is that when we are living consciously, when we're living with the awareness that safe, you know, that first is establishing safety within ourselves so that then we can look at what's in front of us that's challenging, that's triggering us and address it from a place of safety because that, because we don't really come from a place of safety in the, you know, when we first enter treatment. And even after we've left treatment, we, we, you know, we get dysregulated, things happen and we get dysregulated. I would say that, you know, a very, it's nuanced here in that this journey back to, to your inherent worth is nuanced because there's like this, also this phobia that we have with going inside. There's mm-hmm. a phobia that we have with, you know, really finding like that, you know, that witness self that's available, I believe, to all of us. Um, there's a phobia because we have spent our life giving our faith and loyalty to whether it's substance, you know, whether it's a substance, whether it's a love object, whether it's the anger, we have given our faith and loyalty to certain ways of being, certain states of getting, you know, certain states that drugs get us into, as this is what's going to, you know, this is what it is that makes me feel okay. This is what makes me feel safe. Mm -hmm. So to reorient somebody back to their inherent worth in and of itself is challenging and is the first phase of treatment. We can't really process trauma, if you will, mm-hmm. if we're not feeling safe, because then we are ex- like re-traumatizing ourselves, our system, you know, where we traumatizing our whole system. So yes, it is a lifetime journey. Um, and I, I think on the path of that journey, we get derailed you know, on a regular basis, but the more that we practice coming back in alignment with, you know, our inherent worth with what, you know, one of the ways that we work here is using the polyvagal theory that really Mm -hmm. speaks into how to get into a ventral state. The more that we practice having a ventral break and coming into alignment with our witness self, with our, you know, bringing our prefrontal cortex online, the more that we do that, the better that we are at disentangling from patterns that served us in our journey, mm-hmm. served us to protect us from the woundedness that we don't know how to, um, you know, tolerate. Mm-hmm. We don't know how to embrace and integrate and, and digest. 
um, the more that we come back in, the more that we're prepared to look at that in a state of safety versus in a state of dysregulation that doesn't really do much. So the more that we come back, the more that we practice coming back into a ventral state, into a state of, you know, that witness self that we call here at ILC, the the more that we know how to have self-agency and who's driving the bus, you know, is it our parts, the parts of us that are dysregulated? Is it the parts of us that have given our faith and loyalty to addictions? Or is it the part that, you know, from my perspective, my clinical perspective, it really is resourced and has a greater, wider perspective of what's happening in the here and now. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. So that's actually something that I don't know that much about. And I've had a, a listener ask if I could have somebody on to talk about it, but that the whole polyvagal um, nerve, that's something that I'm, I've read a little bit about, um, but I would love to, if you could expand more into that, that'd be awesome. Yeah. Uh, just, you know, I, I, I'll just speak into it briefly because it can get quite complicated, but yeah, I would imagine is that, you know, um, we have, you know, the autonomic system has, you know, the parasympathetic state, the sympathetic state, and the ventral nerve state, which is the one that allows us to feel a sense of calm and connection with our whole system in such a way that simply put our prefrontal cortex that is the part of the brain that really allows us to see things from see the, you know, see what's in front of us with a wider lens that has the capacity to have compassion, to have clarity, to, you know, see things generally, you know, simply put from a wider lens, not from a distorted version of in front of us. And then we have, you know, when we get into sympathetic, that's when you, you know, we hear about fight, flight, or freeze, you know, um, or fight or flight, I should say. And when we are in a dysregulated sympathetic state, we, you know, feel anxious, we feel panicked, we feel rageful, we feel like dysregulated in kind of a, a very mobilized, energized way. And then there's the parasympathetic, you know, we get into a dorsal kind of parasympathetic state, we are, you know, collapsed, if you will, we're in that free state, we're in like, oh, I, I can't move. Mm-hmm. Um, and Stephen Porges discovered this, if you will. I want to say he discovered it in that he didn't, he's not a, he, he met, he was looking at babies and what makes some certain babies more um, resilient than others. Uh-huh. And babies who have uh, the ventral vagus nerve tone are more resilient. And if you consider that, they're more, what I find fascinating is- What do you mean by that, the tone? The tone is like, well, it's such a great question. It's when we have vagus tone, like we can be in the state, like we can hold that state longer. We can hold the state of connection, of our system being connected, our heart being, our the organ of the heart being connected with other organisms in our being that allows us to breathe, you know, in such a way that gives the message to the body, to the our autonomic system that you're safe. It gives the message that we're safe. And is that something that can be seen like on a brain scan if it's toned, if it's in tone? 
Well, what you can see is that the way that you're breathing and your heart and the rhythm of your heart is operating in a way that is, you know, there's a flow, there's a sense of like every, all your organs are connected. The rhythm of your heart is running with the, you know, the rhythm of your breath and you're giving your body and your brain is getting the the message. I'm okay. Um, everything's all right. And when we know that everything's okay, when the message of the body and the mind and the energetics that run through us are getting the message that you're okay, what happens is that the prefrontal cortex comes online and we can then see things from a wider lens. Mm -hmm. We can't see things from a wider lens when we are, you know, interpreting or perceiving better put the world from a dysregulated state. We're seeing it through the lens of traumatic experiences that we've had that resemble the current situation in some way. Mm -hmm. Yet the current situation is not really um, calling for us to have to run or fight. If it's hysterical, it's historical. Yes, 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 yes. And so, you know, I would say that what's important to know of the polyvagal theory simply is that it really speaks to our autonomic system that's functioning on automatic pilot. Mm -hmm. And when something in the environment um, triggers a state of threat, some of us will go into sympathetic dysregulation, which is a mobilization of like fight or flight. Let me fix this. Let me make this okay. Or I'm going to collapse and I'm going to um, play dead. I mean, really, I mean, our, when you think of animals, they play dead and they're not really dead, but they're playing dead so that the perpetrator in, the, in, in their environment leaves them alone. Mm-hmm. I'll give you an example of, you know, this in action. During the pandemic, I was on my deck outside in my house and this bird, I was with my my granddaughter and my daughters that were there. And this little bird came and hit the window and it looked to all of us that he had died and he just collapsed. Mm. And we were all, you know, just surrounding him and, you know, loving him like really i mean it was kind of this moment where my granddaughter was saying oh like let's just send him loving energy i mean really that sounds kind of like trippy but that's what we were doing and the little bird you know all of a sudden came to life and flew away Mm. and we're like wait a minute what just happened and that really reflects our autonomic system Mm. that in humans that when we are in a state that feels like such a threat that our, you know, everyone does their, everyone's autonomic system operates differently. You know, some people might get into fight or flight like automatically and quickly and stay there, not for an hour, but for days. Like they're in states of been there. <laughs> right, right? The relationship I've been in. <laughs> right. Right. So it's like a hyper aroused state of fight or flight. Mm -hmm. And then there's 
you know, some folks who get stimulated and, 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 and it triggers their trauma in their system that it's not been processed Mm -hmm. and they go automatically into a collapse. Mm -hmm. And that's when we see people in a depressive state, a hopeless state. And so what's also important in understanding the polyvagal theory is that both the sympathetic and the parasympathetic states are, are necessary Mm-hmm. for our survival and not in all, in many, in all ways, because when you get up in the morning, when you were sleeping at night, you were in a state of rest and restoration. Like you were in to rest and so that you could repair and that you could digest and you could integrate what happened throughout the day. You know, that's happening automatically. You're resting. And when you get up in the morning, you feel mobilized. And if you've had good rest, then you can go out into the world and do your business and be excited, but not necessarily in a state of panic or in a state of like, uh, you know, dysregulation that, you know, feels more like you're running, you know, to stand still, but you don't know where you're like, you're just running. Um, So both of those states, when we, when they're regulated, are serving us, you know, we have to get in sympathetic mm-hmm. to get on the bike, to go on a bike ride and to mm-hmm. feel like the R of life. You know, you can't just be on, on the couch taking a nap and saying, I'm getting ready for the bike ride. You have to get off, off the couch <laughs> yeah. and feel like I'm rested. I'm happy. I'm ready. I've eaten. And now I'm going to go. That's different than dragging yourself out of bed and then getting enough like sympathetic on board online and you're still feeling dysregulated, but you go, I gotta go. I've got to do this. If I don't do this, I'm I'm no good. So you see there that there's when you have, and back to your question, you know, if you have, you know, ventral tone, it it really speaks to being able to hold within your system a state that allows the flow of your energy of your being to um, function in a way that allows you to see and the world and move in the world with curiosity, you know, with creativity, with compassion for yourself and for others, it puts you in a very different state. Now, the thing is that a lot of us don't feel safe in a ventral state. Isn't that, I mean, that's kind of interesting. You know, you probably have heard in the addiction world that some people, you know, become accustomed and familiar with chaos. Well, that's what, I mean, one of the adult child traits is we become addicted to excitement. So yeah, we get addicted to those negative chemicals. So absolutely. We get addicted. What becomes familiar, what we develop an appetite for is being in states of dysregulated you know, sympathetic or dysregulated, you know, dorsal. Mm -hmm. And, and that's what we're used to, you know, you, you, so if your body becomes accustomed to it, uh, it's because we've been in those states for an ongoing period of time. And so it becomes habitual, it becomes automatic. And when we try to like get into ventral where for a moment, it almost feels like you're on vacation. And if you think of it, 
you're on vacation, it's really beautiful. You know, the, the sun is shining, you know, the air is, you know, there's a breeze, your feet are in the sand and everything seems really peaceful. But then your system goes, I don't really think I want to stay on this vacation anymore. I want to go home, even if home is chaotic. And even though if home feels dysregulated, it's what you know. And sometimes that wins over, you know, the peace that we're looking for because our system isn't the way I see it is our system, the way I experience it and have seen it is that our system doesn't doesn't hold that vibrational pattern of safety very well because it's not from it's not it doesn't have the tone, doesn't have the discipline. It's it's comfortable in some, you know, kind of strange way being dysregulated. Yeah, it's well, it's the same. It's familiar. Well, yeah, it's it's like the same thing with like attachment theory, right? Like, as an anxious attacher, if I go on a date with somebody who's secure, that's boring, right? Like, I I want that avoidant who's gonna you know rub those chemicals up for me, and that's why I would think that you know we get into this anxious avoidant trap. Yeah, yeah, and and what you're saying, you know, in like object relation theory that sheds light on this perspective is like the repetition compulsion you know it's like where you felt held for a little while you know of whatever that was you know you you were always trying to get to that Mm -hmm. however we also become really familiar to the state of when we get dropped Mm -hmm. and and how we then try to get ourselves back into that state of being held and so it becomes this repetition compulsion where we're just kind of running the, you know, the, the, that cycle of, oh, I'm now, I feel peaceful for a little bit. This is kind Doesn't of last long. <laughs> but, you know what? I'm, I, the way I see it is I want to go back. Like your system is automatic and it's like, oh, this doesn't feel right. You know, I mean, a, a very simple way to, that I like to look or that resonates with how I, I experience this with myself and with clients and, you know, the people I've worked with is that, you know, you can get your piano tuned. And if it's been out of tune for a really long period of time, you have somebody come in and it gets tuned up and it's really, you know, operating beautifully and harmoniously. And then if someone doesn't take care of it regularly, it goes back. Mm-hmm. In, a, in a way that, you know, it, it doesn't allow you to, you know, to play your piano optimally and beautifully yeah. and harmoniously. I, I think about that from like the perspective of, of trauma. And I'm curious if you see it this way, you know, obviously with addiction, um, there's no such thing as, you know, being healed. It's a continual process. When it comes to complex trauma and complex PTSD, do you also see that as something that continually has to be you know, addressed and and treated? Yes. And I would say, you know, I mean, in the language that I'd like to use, it's like, when you know, words have power. So if you think about have, you know, having really uh, identified as someone who's a victim of trauma Mm -hmm. and you say, you know, we if we tell people we're never going to get better, or it's so it's no, and we, they know it, that <laughs> it, it gets tricky. So what I would say is that it's an ongoing journey to live your life. It's a choice to live your life consciously. When we when we start, the thing about trauma that's really powerful. In, I mean, the healing of trauma is that 
because we have to reconnect with ourselves in such a way that allows us to heal our whole system, to attend to the ways that the trauma response impacted our whole system, you know, our body, our mind, our spirit. Um, it requires us to be attuned and to bring our awareness inward, to bring our awareness to what needs our attention. And that means in many ways to get dominion of what you're giving your attention to, what you're giving your faith and loyalty to. Mm -hmm. And that is a constant, that's a commitment. That's a commitment to you. That's a commitment. Like if you think of a marriage, you know, you can fall in love and it's all wow. But if you don't nourish the seeds of a healthy mm -hmm. connection, you will fall into old patterns. And that's the same as, you know, entering treatment, at least from the ILC, you know, vantage point of that journey back home to yourself is that you're going to get distracted. Mm -hmm. And the thing that hopefully what's different when you leave ILC is that you know that you're going to get distracted and that you then with grace and with self-compassion recommit to coming, you know, to bring yourself back into a state of regulation, of ventral, of the witness. You know, we call it the witness self here. I mean, we can, we can, you know, depending on who we're working with, because that might not resonate with everybody. But when I say the witness self, it resonates with my perspective. It's, it's the one that's witnessing. It's the, it's who we are as awareness. Mm -hmm. And to me, that's very, you know, similar to what we know about when you are an event, when you're in ventral, when your prefrontal cortex can come online and you can see things from a much larger perspective and you can perceive things from a, you know, not, not from the eyes of your adaptive survival, you know, lens. Yeah. Makes sense. I, absolutely. I think what I say from the standpoint of, I don't want to say people can't ever be healed, but the thought that will never be triggered is unrealistic. It's unrealistic. Right? Yeah. And so it's about having coping skills. So do you view codependency as trauma rooted in trauma? Yes. I see codependency as a natural phenomenon of the human condition, because even if we look for a moment again at the polyvagal theory, there's another state called fawn. Yep. Fawning. That to me is equal to codependency. Codependency. Absolutely. In that when we land here as humans, you know, consider that we're sensory beings, you know, and when we're, when we're infants, you know, we're just perceiving the world mm -hmm. without our, our, you know, ability to make up stories about it, but soon we're going to make up stories about it, you know, and as we start making up stories about it, you know, we start to develop a narrative mm -hmm. and that narrative um, is running our life. And the narrative has been formed in this, in our need for safety and connection. So we're trying to figure out, well, what do they want from me? Mm -hmm. so that I'm okay. What do I need to do? How do I need to look? How do I need to move in the world so that I'm accepted, so that I'm part of? And so in that process, we're not checking in with ourselves, with our authentic self. 
we are vigilantly looking externally to get cues from the people that we need to take care of us to survive to give us information about how we should be in the world who should we be in the world so if you came from a family where they said everybody who has phds has status and clout then you might be chasing phds and you might be codependent to you know academic institutes to uh, acknowledge you to reward you to you know give you a sense of worth but if you were raised in you know a more in a different system where it was like you know the more drugs that you're selling on the street the the scarier you are then you might really be giving your faith and loyalty to okay i'm going to be i'm going to be the rebel i'm going to be the best you know drug dealer in the community and and so somebody that doesn't get that might say well this is really dysfunctional but to that person they have you know it's codependency they have said oh this is how i get you know clout this is how i feel worthy this is how i feel that i have some self agency in the world but that's all you know the way i i i like to talk about it or the way i sense about that is that those ways of being have come to us from our states of survival from a state of fawn if you will and you know we have disconnected we have a fractured sense of self we have a fractured connection with our inherent worth and we are trying to you know it's codependency we're trying to look outside of ourselves to figure out how we're going to do life mm-hmm. and that doesn't go very well because we always feel deep down in our being that we're frauds mm-hmm. and we always feel deep down in our being that there's something not right and the something not right often is that our intrinsic wisdom knows that we're not quite living our life from our authentic self and that just doesn't feel good to us i as when my as humans that just doesn't feel good no it feels horrible <laughs> does that this make sense of course um so so for me i was very oblivious to how little i felt about myself you know on a conscious level i thought that i liked myself and loved myself but my my actions clearly showed otherwise and the big thing for me and i think what i'm seeing through doing this podcast and and part of the reason that i want to do this podcast is that i think there's a lot of people out there who like me were never physically or sexually abused right like they didn't have it that bad and so they don't really think that <laughs> their issues are rooted in childhood trauma um and so it's like this whole concept that like you know emotional neglect can be you know equally as damaging as some more you know horrendous forms of abuse and trauma and so i'm i'm assuming that that's something that you come across all the time like through your work yes absolutely and you know what comes to mind as you ask the question is that you know someone that i had the privilege of working with you know uh or training with probably 30 years ago pm melody she really brought to light to me you know some of how to answer that question which is that trauma ha- like one thing that always sticks with me trauma happens whenever a child is forced to adapt 
to the needs of their major caretakers. Mm. And, and think of that. It's like in that process of adapting to the needs of the major caretaker, we lose connection with our truth, with our authentic self. We just do. I mean, the business of, of growing up has a lot to do with somebody's eyes being on you and saying, what do you think about that? Check in with you. What's happening inside? To trust you, to trust what feels right for you, to help that the child develop, you know, affect, you know, tolerance, to know, to let, help that child through the process of, you know, of challenges by checking in with themselves. But when a child is forced to adapt to the needs of the major caretakers because the major take major caretakers just aren't there in that way that you know and and most parents aren't there in that way not because they're oh you know they're engaged in what we see as clear abuse it, it's more like they're neglecting the child inadvertently because they're checked out they're trying to figure out how to be in the world themselves and in that process Trauma happens and trauma, you know, I, I want to just have, you know, I want to give, you know, credibility to like those in the field that have influenced or have supported my perspective. It's like a Bormate. It's like there's a fracture between you, the way you're being in the world and your truth, mm -hmm. because your being in the world is really um, coming from your, let's just call it the codependency your need to adapt, your need to figure out what do they want from me, you know? And so then there's a feeling of like, well, I didn't, as you're saying, I didn't have it as bad as somebody else, but something really doesn't feel good within me. And the trauma is a fractured relationship with mm -hmm. the way you're being and the way, you know, your authentic self. And, and we all know, even though we don't know, but there's a feeling like something's wrong mm -hmm. because you're not, there's a fracture. There's the you that, you know, is here, you know, to evolve your competencies and your gifts and your intelligence, you know, and to offer something to the world. I, I mean, I, that's a, that's a, my point of view. And yet that's not how, where you're coming from. You're coming from the state of survival um, that you consciously or unconsciously assembled so that you could adapt to the needs of the world or the dominant culture or your family, whatever it is, and you know something's wrong. And usually those ways of being are often in extreme. They're like, you know, I really am influenced by internal family systems. Those those attributes that you have within your own system are functioning in extreme ways mm -hmm. to um to be okay in the world. Yeah. So it's it's the survival mechanisms as well as the faulty core beliefs that we develop about ourselves we develop yeah yeah absolutely you know and i think of if i you know i can add in here is that ilc really has been influenced the birth of, of ilc my understanding was really influenced by this little book by don miguel ruiz the four agreements mm -hmm. and you know, we can look at what we're talking about from that, from the perspective of the four agreements is that we make agreements unconsciously as we're trying 
to survive in this world. You know, the Toltec wisdom talks about it from, you know, the process of domestication. We then make agreements and we make these agreements that form um, our adaptive roles inform our adaptive roles and have beliefs and have ways of thinking and have agreements. Like an agreement might be, you know, no one's ever going to love me. An agreement is don't trust anybody. An agreement will be, you know, everyone's a phony or everyone's up to get me. Or if only I was loved or if only I was pretty enough, if only I was this enough, if only I got. So we make these agreements that the way I experience it, get encoded literally in our system. Mm -hmm. And when we enter into the healing journey and we come back into, you know, connection with our inherent worth and we recover what we've been giving our faith and loyalty to, we have an opportunity to re-examine the agreements that we made. So that's one way to look at it from like the Toltec wisdom from the four agreements. And another way to look at it is that we start to look at how trauma has happened as we have, you know, uh, been forced to adapt to the needs of our major caretakers so that we can survive because we need them to survive. We need to, we need, we're, you know, we're, we're not, we're interconnected. We're interdependent. We are tribal. We are not, you know, there's there's a lie that's been fed to us that we are, you know, like independent. Yeah, we're in, we're unique, but we're also collectively collectively, you know, connected, mm-hmm. and we mm-hmm. need each other. So obviously, there's many healing modalities for treating complex trauma. How do you navigate with a client what is going to be the most effective path forward? Yeah. So I'll say again that, or I'll, uh, I'll reiterate it and maybe amplify a little bit of the way I see, you know, the, the process, the phases of treatment of, of trauma. And like I said earlier, it's like first is safety. That's first. And in, and in that, you know, exchange with the client to establish safety, we learn a lot about their worldviews, their, you know, their cultural perspective, their cultural understanding of what the problem is, you know, quote, unquote, um, we learn a lot. And in that process, we also want to invite clients to the healing journey in a way that resonates with their worldviews. And so earlier, I said that there's many different modalities that perhaps serve to heal trauma. And yet I would say that there's like this one destination that's really critical, which is to reconnect with who you are that's greater than your diagnosis, the parts that you have consciously or unconsciously developed, that you are greater than that. So in that, we would say that the destination is back to reestablish a connection with that, to consider that to feel that. And, you know, then it's like the second stage is to like start to process it, but to process it from a state of safety mm-hmm. and then to process the next stage would be, how do you integrate 
that that you are learning about yourself, the new agreements that you're making with yourself, the new patterns that you're developing in replacing those old ones. And, you know, how you get there with somebody, I mean, I think it's important to, to have a variety of ways to get there because if we just think that there's one way to treat trauma, we are actually perpetuating the trauma experience of Mm -hmm. I'm going to tell you how to do it Mm -hmm. because I'm the expert and you're not. Mm -hmm. So we really have to listen to the client's worldview, the client's language, their culture, all of that to help them find a way that that resonates with them so that they can find their path their they they can find their way back and then then they can find a modality that helps them disentangle from those patterns so it could be that psychodrama really is a way to help them disentangle from that it could be that cbt that is a way to help somebody you know with you know um is that like looking at distorted, you know, mm-hmm. cognitions about themselves mm-hmm. that that might really work. I think what's unique to ILC, I want to say this is that all of those modalities can be really useful. What I, what I think needs to be added to any modality is the utter respect for the client's intrinsic wisdom that is available to them when they reconnect. Mm-hmm themselves and that in of itself can be a process that takes time mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. that makes sense like we want to we it oh, takes yeah, absolutely time. It, it you know and so there's a lot of different modalities but i think modalities that put the clinician in the driver's seat in the driver's seat is actually potentially harmful it's perpetuating the idea that you don't know when somebody else does mm-hmm and I, I think that is uh, ultimately really disrespectful to the ethical law of life that really speaks into how within all of us, there is magnificence that's available to us. There's like, there's something really, you know, you know, like I think of the Hakomi method that really speaks to how we all have an intrinsic wisdom within us that is self-directing, self-healing. And helps us unfold into wholeness. That, that that is, you know, a really beautiful way of respecting our, our, the organicity of the human condition. You know, there's something there that allows us to really, you know, start to see and attune to, you know, that I keep on using the word magnificent because it's coming to mind. Is that there's something magnificent about it? There's there's within our system, you know, if you will, a pharmacy of of possibilities to help to help us self heal. Mm-hmm. Do you want to share some um, pivotal moments within your own healing journey? Sure. Um, I mean, that's a big question. I mean, it's, there's many. Um, let me see where I want to start with that. Um, you know, a memory that most uh, that most often you know comes up for me when I'm asked that question is one. Mm-hmm of being a little girl, um, you know, maybe four or five years old. And we, my family came from Cuba 
um, at a time where, you know, you were only allowed out of Cuba um, through the Red Cross. You know, we weren't, you know, we, we weren't really, you know, Cubans weren't given permission to come into the United States. But in, the, in 1963, we got into um, the United States because my sister had a medical condition um, where she was, you know, diagnosed with glaucoma and that she would be going blind. So they gave us permission to come to, you know, through Miami and then to Massachusetts, to Boston, the um, Mass Ear Hospital to help her. And I remember being, you know, sent to, I guess we could call foster homes, you know, from through the Red Cross while my mother and my father, my father would work and my mother was with my sister who was having like, you know, surgeries after surgery to see if we could keep oh. her from going blind. And when I would visit with my mother, I would, um, I, I just, and I, 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 I didn't have the cognition to understand what I was doing, but I really kind of felt that I was generating love to her. And that might sound silly, but I remember bit, like vividly that I was what doing age? probably four or five. Mm-hmm. I was little and she would, you know, I could tell, it wasn't like I was thinking, oh, she's depressed. I could feel her sadness and I just would send love to her. Mm-hmm. And later in my life, that, you know, that I wasn't supported, if you will, back to my, you know, my comment earlier that trauma happens whenever you have to force to the, mm-hmm. when you're forced to adapt to the needs of the major caretaker. It wasn't like I had anybody to say, oh, you know, teaching me, you know, oh, you know, love is powerful, or, you know, the energy of love is powerful, or you have something within you that is really, um, you know, I want to just say to all of us kind of practical, magical, like we have this place inside of us, compassionate and loving, and it's like the wisdom of the heart. No one was telling me that. And eventually that felt quite vulnerable to be in that state because I was a kind little girl that wanted to be loving to people. And, you know, that took, that unfolded into an extreme state you know, way of being that looks in the mental health field is codependent. You know, I became, uh, I became, I, I took that way of being, if you will, and made it my winning formula, made it my, what rewarded me in my family of origin was to be the one that showed up and took care of. And, you know, I'll just say another moment that really sticks out to me that later became moments where I had to reclaim my, my, my own sense of self and from a different perspective, right? When I got older was that I had a mom who was really awesome and, you know, she's passed. Um, so I want to be respectful of, of sharing this because she didn't mean to hurt me, but when she would say to me, don't be selfish, Mm. your sister can't see, Mm. you know, um, you can. So I, back to the agreements, I got agreements that don't be too much. Don't be too important. Just you're the one that's here to help with, you know, the trauma of uh, that we're experiencing with your sister going blind, the risk of her going blind. So I became, you know, very, like I said earlier, I became vigilant to like, okay, what, what, where do I fit in here? Mm-hmm. How do I use what I've got? It's my natural attributes and and develop ways of being in the world now was i thinking all that no of course not but it was happening automatically back to the you know the polyvagal theory our autonomic system is wired for safety and connection so i was like okay i'll develop it wasn't it wasn't conscious but i was developing ways of being and those ways of being again looks quite codependent in the world and so 
um, I became very interested in trying to fix my family, really, and um, abandon myself in many ways. And what mattered to me, like I think what matters to somebody who does drugs, is to try to get them to know how to process feelings. I mean, really, that's what I wanted. Like, I'm like, why can't my father stay in a conversation about my sister going blind? We need to process this. And he couldn't. So I was like, I want. So I became really, you know, invested in my family's healing. But I didn't get too far with them. Shocking. <laughs> I really didn't. It didn't go very well. In fact, they probably resented me for that role that I played. And at the same time, they, um, that was my role. They loved me for it and they maybe resented me for it. Let's say that. And I, by accident, ended up in a, going to college for um, working with children or human services. I really didn't even know, you know, 40 years ago, I didn't really know what psychotherapy was or counseling was. I came from a Latin family. That was like, those are for crazy people. Um, and, you know, I started studying psychology at undergrad and I started doing, you know, taking, a, I had a dual kind of um, degree with counseling psychology, even though it was an undergrad degree, where I got to practice with a pretty amazing um, professor at Leslie, Neil Klein, Dr. Neil Klein. And I got into, you know, practicing counseling skills by helping, you know, doing role plays where you would help somebody drop into their authentic self. I didn't know what that was 40 years ago. That seemed kind of like, this is kind of weird. And so that was a pivotal moment. I was like, wow, we can really help clients in this process called counseling and psychotherapy to re to, to like to befriend their, their truth. And that was 40 years ago. We didn't know about the polyvagal theory. And we did a lot of guided meditations and imagery to help clients like reconnect with themselves and get to know themselves. And so I became very curious about counseling. I also started to study codependency. And I said, well, I'm not going to be a codependent therapist. <laughs> that doesn't sound good. So I will say humbly that what I was doing with my family that looked quite codependent, I was very committed 100% to not do it with my clients. Mm. So, you know, I didn't really do the, I, I didn't, I didn't have, let's just say the tone, the, the vagal tone to be with my family and stay, you know, out of their way and not be in fawn. Uh, but I did develop it in the context of my role as a therapist. Mm. And I knew that it was disempowering to, to my clients and it really lacked clinical integrity to be in that role with my clients where I am getting rewarded. My ego is getting rewarded mm -hmm. for their progress. So I said, well, it's not about me. It's about them. If that makes sense. And in that process, I really saw that what was, again, I'm going to use the word magical, but it wasn't like magical in a woo way. It was like really beautiful to just sit with people and give them space to be, mm. let them be, let them, let them, let them like share their story, let them share their story in a way that invited a dialogue where they could like see beyond the story to see that there was more to them than that story. 
that that was a story that somehow um, they became attached to, but there were more than that story. And I didn't know what I was doing back then, but you know, what's really fascinating these days is that there's all this research that backs up that simply probably, I'm not simple. What I was doing was I was, we're going to reference again, the polyvagal theory. I was attuning with Mm -hmm. myself in such a way that I could get in ventral, Mm -hmm. that I could get in the witness self in such a way that I co-regulated with the client. I allowed my nervous system to be regulated enough so that they could tune into their nervous system and not just identify as, you know, the victim of trauma. They were more than that. They were more than just their substance abuse diagnosis. Mm -hmm. And there's current research today that backs up that we really, like I think of Dan Siegel's work of interpersonal neurobiology. You know, I'm a cell, you're a cell. And what happens between us is a social synapse. And I understood that, you know, I'm going to go back to when I was four years old and I was sitting with my mother and she was sad and depressed and I would just send love to her. Well, I can translate that now today as a clinic, as a therapist, that what I was doing when I was in my twenties that I didn't know was listening with such impeccability that the client felt seen Mm. and I wasn't trying to change them. I was trying to listen to what would make their lot, what would make it different for them? What, What would change the game for them? And most of the time, what we found was that they had developed an attachment to addiction like to substances they developed an attachment to thinking that if only they found the right guy or girl that everything would be okay and we'd listen with such you know like uh, impeccability that you started to unpack that and and something happened and it it goes back to the hakomi method it goes back to you know, when you really believe and with all in your bones that each one of us have intrinsic wisdom, you're you're seeing that you're inviting that to show up. Mm. And something happens, people then start to self heal and self direct with your guidance with your facilitation, but it's them. Mm-hmm. Because it doesn't go very well when you're telling somebody to do something. Because it's actually more of the same, let me tell you what you need to do so that you're okay. And if you do what I say, then you're going to be okay. But then when that person, if that person really didn't feel it and wasn't moved to take action to change in that way, then when you're gone, they just go back to, you know, the piano analysis. They're back to, you know, not playing their instrument beautifully and organically the way that they're meant to. Mm -hmm. So what about, if somebody's, you know, looking for a therapist to help them with this, I mean, like, what are some good, what are some good questions to ask to, to know if perhaps it's a right fit? Like, can you ask them? Have you like, are you doing work? Like, how do you suss that out? Well, that's such a great question. Um, You know, I think the best question is to say, you know, to how do you see the healing journey? Mm. How do you see it? You know, I don't, you know, I, I, I appreciate your question because, you know, I, I kind of want to say, well, you know, maybe it's important to say, 
what have you done for your work? But, you know, maybe that's a boundary, you know, violation for, for well, they could say no, they don't have to answer it. You could still ask. But the question that. I think, I mean, the, a very telling question is how do you see the, the healing journey? You know, how do you see healing? How do you like, if somebody says to me, like, I'll give you an example. If someone comes to my private practice, not even here at ILC or at ILC as well. You know, I want, I want to go to treatment with somebody who is really trained in cognitive behavioral therapy, who, you know, takes that expert role, then that person has the right to go to that person, period, because there's different people there. We're all different. We, we, and, you know, I'd like to say that we really respected ILC and I certainly respected in my work, the ethical law of life, which is this, you know, the right to be, become and belong. Like that's such an important piece of our understanding that we need to understand in our clinical world because somebody might want to go to a treatment facility that does CBT, that doesn't get into what I'm even talking about. That might be what they need. They might need Band-Aids. I respect that. Mm. Uh, so to me, what I would say to answer your question is that we first have to respect that not everybody might be looking for this way of this radical healing process that I'm, that I'm kind of speaking into. Okay. Mm -hmm. So we want to ask questions when we go see a therapist, what kind of, you know, and what's the framework in which you work? What is the framework in which you see healing? What's the framework in, in which you see particular diagnosis? How do you understand addiction? How do you understand, you know, codependency? That's the first question. And does that, re and my wish would be that you really listen, you know, but then again, that's part of, it's part of the healing is like, we're not listening inside. We're listening outside. Yeah, we don't know how to listen to the right, for the right answer. <laughs> well, you know, I love what you just said, because we don't know how to listen in that way. Hopefully if you go to the right kind of therapy, if you will, you know, someone's going to help you listen to that knowledge to, to a silent knowledge that's within us mm. more than because think of what i said earlier trauma happens whenever we are forced to adapt to the needs of others so we have been primed in our journey into this world to survive and to feel like we're part of we have like what do they think i should do so you go to somebody with a phd and they say, what you need is this, this, and this, and this, and this. And you're like, oh, okay, okay. And you go to them. But, you know, your system knows this doesn't resonate with me. This doesn't feel good to me. But you keep on abandoning yourself and saying, well, they must know they're the experts. Mm -hmm. So what you're saying about we, good therapy, good practice, best practice is that we help people say, listen, listen, mm -hmm. make space. You know, I have a way of really experiencing this and that when we inhale, we create this space within our being and we listen and, and, and that's, you know, connected to the ventral state. You take a breath, we create a, a ventral break when we're dysregulated. And when we breathe, we're also creating space to be with what's happening inside to attune. And you go, this doesn't feel right to me, huh? Let's investigate why that doesn't feel right. What's the story I'm telling myself? How, is it maybe true for me? How is it not true to me? We have to listen. We're not trained to listen. We're not trained. We're not, I guess the word that I keep on saying groomed, but we're not 
we're not guided to listen inside. In our need for safety and connection, we we go outside of ourselves to get the answers and we betray ourselves unknowingly over and over again. And then we wonder why our lives become unmanageable. Our life becomes unmanageable because we're not in the driver's seat. We're trying to control our external world so that we feel okay because that's what we learn. We learn that if I adapt to your needs, I'll be okay. So imagine the healing process as you as you've been sharing and your questions you've been that's been reflected in your questions is challenging because we have to come back home to mm-hmm. ourselves and mm-hmm. listen to ourselves. And we've been trained not to. Mm. Well, this has fed my soul. <laughs> this has well, been amazing. You know, and I want to say that in some ways, you know, what I've shared could sound esoteric in some way, but what's real and what's really beautiful is that, you know, a lot of the scholars in the field and the trauma field have shed, have have given credibility to something that I believe has been, um, you know, in our collective consciousness forever, which is that there is something within us that is uh, that offers intrinsic wisdom. That it is that we have to be courageous enough at, in the mental health field to pause long enough to tune into that and to trust that again. Mm. And scholars like you know Dan Siegel, who does who offers us interpersonal neurobiology, really speaks to that. Gabra Mate speaks to that. Richard Schwartz with Internal Family Systems, you know the polyvagal theory that was offered to us by Dr. Stephen Porges um, really are speaking into, you know, the science that we now understand that is so aligned with ancient wisdom that Mm -hmm. speaks to like, there's something greater than the stories that we tell ourselves about who we are. Thank you so much for your time. I love this. Well, that wraps up today's episode. As always, I hope you heard something that can help you on your own journey. And as always, I know that you did or you have issues. <laughs> Thanks again to Carmen. Um, and, and go check out the show notes for links to all the integrative life center shit. Uh, I had a, I don't really think I have anything I need to tell you. I, I had a very, uh, very good interview today. And you guys are going to love it. I will just give you a little tease. So we got uh, Black Panther Militia and we have wrongful conviction of murders. So um, yeah, that's it. Go join the damn Patreon. Go give me a follow. Go tell your mom, your dad, anybody. One way that you guys could help me too is that if you ever see something I post on Instagram or TikTok or whatever, like you share it, like add it to your stories if it's something that you're okay with being on your stories. So that is a way that you can also help a girl out is by sharing my damn content. Um, or you could take a screenshot of the episode on your phone when you're listening to it and you could post it on your social media saying, I'm listening to this episode, okay? Let's start doing that kind of stuff. <laughs> and I will see you guys next week for another fucking amazing episode of Adult Child Super Raw, Super Vulnerable. 
super excited for y'all to hear it. It's going to be a goodie, I promise. <laughs>